Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Two and a half years ago, I launched this podcast with the New Deal. We're in the depths of the dysfunction and criminality of the Trump administration. I wanted to share with you, the listeners, the hope that I saw from amazing leaders at the state and local level. No one embodied that ethos of public service as an honorable profession more than our first guest, Jason Kander. After serving in the military, Jason became a rising star in the Democratic Party, first serving in the Missouri legislature, then as Secretary of State. He was on presidential shortlists, running a successful national project on voting, and was preparing to launch his campaign to be mayor of his hometown of Kansas City, Missouri. Shortly after our interview, Jason shocked us all by dropping out of the race, citing his challenges from PTSD from his time in Afghanistan. He decided to lead not through elective office, but through the very personal work of addressing mental health, first for himself and then for others. Years later, we, our nation and Jason, are in a different place, So much better in many ways, but with more to be done. Debbie Cox Bolton and I were so excited to talk with Jason about his life path, the challenges around voting rights, his work helping veterans, and so much more that we decided to team up for this interview. It's as interesting and inspiring conversation as we've had in a long time. Enjoy. So Jason Kander, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks for having me uh, again. Yeah, well, we're really excited to have you. I'm so excited, excited in fact, that uh, this is Ryan and I's first time going to co-host this podcast. So we're uh, excited to talk to you together. And we're doing that, of course. There's so many issues that we're excited to talk to you about, so much going on in the country. But also, as you mentioned, since you are a special guest to us because you were our very first An Honorable Profession podcast guest back in September of 2018. So this is a, a super um, exciting honor for, for us to have you back. And, you know, fast forward two and a half years, New Deal's celebrating our 10th anniversary this uh, month or this, this spring. That's great. We are, we've got 25,000 listens on the podcast. And of course, you know, since we last talked, the world has changed and state and local leaders have really had to step up on so many issues from the pandemic to the recession, racial justice and more. So just excited to talk to you about that. Obviously, you were a New Deal leader when you were in office as Secretary of State. I think you joined back in 2014 and did all kinds of great work that we highlighted, including making it easier for military personnel and other overseas Missourians to vote. You were ahead of your time on a very important issue that we're all talking about now. And we've loved having you stay in in contact with New Deal to talk about things that you've been doing since then, including your work with the Veterans Community Project, which we're excited to talk about today. So with all of that, really just excited to have you back. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it very much. 
Well, let's start, Jason, with, with, I just want to, you know, ask the most important question in my mind, which is, you know, just how you're doing. Our listeners will remember that you uh, made a very brave decision a while back when you were talked about as a potential presidential candidate and then had decided to run for mayor of Kansas City to step back from all of that and announced that you had had struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder from being in Afghanistan and needed to focus on your mental health and your family. You helped so many people when you made that decision, frankly. And um, and I'm just thinking now with COVID in the last year and a half uh, we've all had, I know so many more people are struggling with, with mental issues. And I just wonder how it's been for you for this last year. You know, my life is so different from the last time I was on this podcast. I mean, uh, so I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. There were parts of COVID that were really challenging for me, just like for anybody. But uh, like a lot of people, I can say that it was uh, so much better for us than for so many others. We we didn't lose anyone close to us, thank goodness. And and financially, we were in a position to be able to weather it. And then as far as like my mental health, after I stepped back from everything, I, I went to weekly therapy at the VA and uh, I did that for a few months and that made a huge difference in my life. And now, you know, I, I go back and see my therapist um, every few months uh, at the VA, but uh, I really fortunate now to be in a phase of my life that I think of as, as post-traumatic growth. So it's going extremely well. I, I have a job I love. We have a, a new baby girl who is seven months old now and uh, and is just terrific. Uh, Bella Brave, she's awesome. And then, you know, I, I, uh, I still have the podcast, Majority 54, so I'm still involved. I, I had the opportunity to be a surrogate on the Biden campaign. So I'm, I'm as involved as I want to be, but at the same time, I get to work out nearly every day. I coach my my son's little league team, and I, for the first time in 22 years, joined a baseball team. So, like, I'm playing organized baseball. So it's I'm so much. My life is just completely different than it was, and it's really great. Jason, that's so amazing to hear. Congratulations on your the birth of your daughter. So many of us follow you online, and you seem to be able to engage in politics and social media and maintain sanity and be frankly seem to be having fun which almost no one else is able to do can you talk a little bit about how as a public figure you navigate mental health and social media and political engagement uh sure you know i mean i guess the big change for me is that before my career and then as an extension of that the, you know, attention and fame and adulation and all that had become my self-medication. Uh, and it was really my coping mechanism to keep me from being inside my own mind where it was very unpleasant. And now that I've dealt with the underlying trauma that made it so unpleasant in my brain, I, I no longer feel the compunction to avoid myself by going on social media, by doing those things. So now I just do it in a way that is I, that I find either productive or entertaining. And that's a big difference. Like before I really cared like how many followers I had. And I really cared like, because it was the only way to measure my self-worth and my success and, and that kind of thing. And I could focus on that and try and control that instead of trying to control like bad dreams or hypervigilance or emotional numbness or all the other stuff that came with PTSD. 
and now it's, it's completely different. Like, I guess the best, it's not a social media thing, but it's a media thing. The best way to explain it is like doing TV appearances and that kind of thing was narcotic basically for me because it would soothe what, you know, what was going on with me. Big speeches would, you know, that kind of stuff. They had the same effect. And I remember I'm actually, I'm writing this new book. It's a, a memoir about my mental health journey. And one of the things I just wrote about in the book is that about seven months after I stepped back from everything, I was doing much better. And my therapist knew that one of the things I wanted to do was model post-traumatic growth for people. And instead of, you know, it was important that I had stepped back and, and helped battle the stigma that said, you know, you, you can't ask for help. That was important, but I felt like it was equally important that I show people that you can actually get better. And now that I was feeling much better, he knew that I wanted to go and model that, but he also knew that I was really concerned about, you know, like kind of trying that drug again of, of doing media and that kind of stuff. And he encouraged me to do it anyway. And I did, and I did a, a, my first thing in seven months was a Lester Holt interview on NBC nightly news. So like, you know, national primetime TV. And it was a big deal for me that I did it and I did the interview and it went great and everything. And then afterwards I didn't feel particularly high. Like I remember feeling like, oh, I'm glad I did that. I think it'll help some people, but it wasn't like, I got to do that again right away. And then that night we didn't even watch it when it, when it came out, we, we went to a pizza place in New York with friends. So like that to me was like a big moment. And so for me, social media is the same way now. Like I use it to advance causes I care about. I use it to engage with people sometimes. I use it just to try and be funny or to like show off stuff my kids are doing, but that's it. And, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, that, that includes political causes. Oftentimes it includes more like causes I'm working on outside of politics, but I guess I just use it like a normal person should now, I guess it's the answer to your question. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I, you know, I wanted on this question of being kind of a model and, and trying to help other people. I, I was really moved, Jason, by that op-ed that you wrote in February to the letter. It was kind of a letter to the survivors of the uh, January 6th attack at the Capitol for people who haven't seen it. And and you, you you said that you wanted to, they should use this as a permission slip for, for therapy and that they needed to take their trauma seriously. And obviously this has become such a political issue. I just wonder why you thought that that was important to, to, to write that? Uh, well, one of the things I've learned is that it's not just that trauma shaming is a thing, like where people, you know, try and shame you away from dealing with your trauma. It's that we do it to ourselves. Like that's what I did to myself for 10 years. It's why I didn't get help despite having symptoms that definitely warranted it because I couldn't accept the idea that I had earned, you know, that, that what I had been through was, was important was a big enough deal for that. And what I've learned is that every, just about everybody ends up believing that and feeling that way. And I saw like when AOC came out and, and talked about it as a traumatic event, and then there were all sorts of people because, you know, people on the right who were coming after her and saying like that she was just attention seeking and all that. And I, I didn't feel that way. I felt like what she was doing was really important because, you know, there were a lot of people who were, whether they were members of Congress or staff or, doesn't matter. I mean, facilities management, people who work at the Capitol, anybody who was involved in that, it, it could easily have been traumatic. And, and I just thought it was a, it was really dangerous to make people feel like it was that there was something wrong if, 
with you if you sought help because you weren't feeling the same afterwards. And that's what moved me to do it. So I, that's, I just kind of felt like, well, I know that there's a lot of people I hear from them every day, people who say that, you know, they didn't believe that what they had been through was enough to warrant trauma until, you know, they read that I didn't believe that either and that I did it anyway. And so I just felt like it was important to say, look, I'm a Afghanistan veteran and I have PTSD and you can tell yourself that what you went through wasn't trauma, but like, you know, here's a permission slip from a combat veteran with PTSD telling you what you went through was traumatic. So you should go get help if, if you're not feeling right. Jason, can I ask this year has been so brutal on elected officials as we navigated challenges to our democracy, a pandemic and economic crisis or reckoning on racial injustice and, and beyond. And I hear privately from a lot of elected officials, especially women who are serving at the local level and as mayors and other things that they just feel like they've been under attack, their, their mental health is challenged and they can't talk about it because, because they're, we're still in a crisis and people need, need their local officials to, to be modeling, you know, resilience and we're going to get through it, but it's still very real. Can you talk a little bit about to specifically to elected officials about how, to, to navigate mental health as it, you know, as it relates to our jobs? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things because I've, I've talked to a, a, a lot of these folks too. And there's two things here. One, it's really important to have somebody that you can talk to who, you know, it's not enough for it just to be like a cousin or a brother or a sister or a parent or whatever. It has to be somebody who actually understands the experience. So it probably has to be either a current or a former elected official, because otherwise there's a real tendency for people to think that, well, you're in this job that you wanted and it's high profile. And, you know, how could that be upsetting? How could that be depressing? Uh, how could that be any of those things? And so I think everybody, particularly mayors, or anybody in an executive role, because like legislators have oftentimes they have other legislators to talk to. But I found that like mayors, for instance, during COVID without, I'm not talking about any specific mayor, but I've talked to a few, you know, it's a pretty, it can be a pretty lonely position because who, you know, there's not, there's no one else in your town who's experiencing it the way you're experiencing it. So it's important to be able to find other people, whether they be people who occupied your position before, people who occupy your position in other cities that you can talk to about it and have really frank conversations. And then the other part is remembering that everybody feels differently about their job over this past year. And I, there are so many people I know, whether they're elected officials or not, who at some point in the last year, if they were fortunate enough to keep their job, started to think about whether they wanted a new job or a new career. And they had to either be reminded or remind themselves that they still do like their job and they still do like their career. It's just that in COVID times, it feels completely different. And, it, and COVID lasted so long and, and the work from home lasted so long that after a while, it just became like, I guess this is my job now, this is what it is. And, and so I think everybody went through that and I don't think elected officials are any different. And so for instance, I've talked to elected officials who like are thinking about, should they run for something else or should they leave office or whatever? And I just remind them like, Hey, your job is actually pretty fun and pretty fulfilling when we're not in a global pandemic. And so, and, and I think that's also true, like no matter what you do, 
It is good advice. And Ryan, of course, as a form, as a current uh, elected official, uh, not me, uh, I know feels that very well. And um, actually, I don't know if Ryan recently announced he's not seeking re-election. So I think he's, uh, he, for, for many reasons, Ryan, I'm not saying that, you know, but uh, I know that you, you relate to what Jason just said for sure. Jason, where, where, where were you like three weeks ago when I was making that decision? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's all good. Look, I'm glad you're focusing on the podcast. <laughs> Ryan will go on to do, continue to do great things. But I, I want to talk a little bit, Jason, about back to kind of the, we talked a little, touched on the Capitol attack. Obviously, another thing that you have been really active in your life, both as an elected official, speaking of elected officials, as Secretary of State, and then post uh, public service uh, in elected office uh, with Let America Vote has been democracy. And it, it's, of course, that was at the heart of the Capitol attack. I'm just kind of curious, just generally, how are you feeling about our state of democracy at the moment? Uh, you know, at times it's pretty discouraging. I mean, it's encouraging in the sense that I think there are good people in power in Washington right now, but it is discouraging when you look at obviously all these horrendous bills that are being introduced around the country uh, to try and make it harder to vote, to try and cut off access to the ballot. And, you know, we really need to pass the For the People Act. But what I try to do is because, look, I don't know what the likelihood is that we pass the For the People Act, but I do know that it's not like it, well, this is our best chance in a long time. This is not our only chance. There are elections coming up in 2022. We can elect more people who, who want to do it. And if we can't do it then, then we can do it a couple of years later. There will be other opportunities. But yeah, it is a full court press right now to, to pass it. And it is the most important thing. I mean, it is, it's the most important piece of legislation in a generation, at least. And it's an all hands on deck effort. There's no question about it. Uh, let I'm still on the board of Let America Vote, which is now merged within Citizens United and is solely committed to this. And uh, so I, I, uh, I remain hopeful. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a scary time as far as our democracy goes. I couldn't agree more. And the, the act is so important to pass, especially as we see these actions across states. Can you talk a little bit about how, I know some red state Democrats, you know, this is a hard vote for them to take, how they should engage with their citizenry to talk about democracy and talk about this vote in a way that, that advances the cause, but also doesn't hurt the Democrats in, in red states. There's two things about this. And the first thing I think is the most important, and that is that uh, some things are worth losing over. That was what I, that's what I would tell people is I would say, yeah, you might be right. Like, I don't know. I, I, maybe this will hurt. Maybe like maybe voting uh, to reform the filibuster could cause somebody to lose a reelect. You should still do it because like it's the most important thing in a generation. And, and the thing is that uh, that's part of being in politics is the chances, particularly like as a Democrat in a red state, like it's kind of like being the manager of a baseball team. Like you're there until you get fired and you're going to get fired for something at some point, most likely it may as well be saving democracy. So that's the first thing I tell people. And then the second thing I tell them is I'd say, look, it's, you're crazy if you think that voters are going to base their decision on your vote on the arcane rules of the United States Senate. Like nobody cares. Like they, they, like the average voter, they don't care. What they care about is like democracy. And there's an easy argument to make for that. And then people say, well, no, it's really important that I you know, do bipartisan things. You know, nobody is taking bipartisans to the bank. The bank doesn't accept them. The reason that voters want bipartisan 
action. And the reason that it always polls so well is because what voters want is they want stuff to get done. And usually stuff only gets done if there's a bipartisan uh, majority or a bipartisan agreement on something. But when it comes to COVID relief, when it comes to now infrastructure, when it comes to getting something done on guns, when it comes to the For the People Act, all of these, th and um, there's others too, action on climate change, all of these things have the support of the majority of the American people. I think pretty much all of those things have either majority or very close to majority support uh, and popularity in even red states. Well, none of those things are bipartisan right now. And that's fine. Like that's not going to cost you because people want you to get stuff done. And they only like bipartisanship when bipartisanship stands between them and stuff getting done. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I love the point about, you know, people run for office to do something, right? And so, you know, you, you got to do it. And sometimes that's unpopular. It might be unpopular. Sometimes it might be popular, but, you, you know, not with the loudest people you're hearing from or whatever it is. And I think that, you know, that's just important to be reminded as elected officials that, you know, you've got to stand your ground on, on some of this stuff. But I want to ask kind of a related question, Jason, which is, you know, I think part of the problem here and with so many issues right now, and you talk, you have your podcast, you mentioned it, Majority 54, which is, I think, was started to have a conversation about how you talk to people, you know, Trump voters, how you talk to people who disagree with you. This is one of those things where, I mean, while I completely agree with you, there are a lot of people who just fundamentally believe a different set of facts than, than probably the three of us do, right? And Donald Trump, you know, fostered that, you know, the big lie. So my question is it kind of related, which is how, how do we talk to people who just don't, who really still believe that the election was stolen and that, um, and that we just can't agree on a common set of facts on this particular issue? So this is really what we talk about all the time on Majority 54. And what, what we've been talking a lot about is how you have to you leverage your personal relationship. Like that's what we all have to be doing across the country is, you know, you, you can't, you can't sound the same as the people on MSNBC or CNN or the, or the, you know, voices from the left that go on Fox. Like it's gotta be something different and it's gotta be based on your personal relationships. So if you're talking with someone who like, you know, you know them because your kids are on the same you know, team or you uh, know them through church or whatever, or they're your neighbor or, or a family member, like you have a personal relationship with them and that comes with some degree of credibility. They have already consented to that personal relationship with you. And so, you have more credibility than somebody from the left who comes on their TV and talks. And so don't just say the same thing as those people. Talk about why you believe what you believe and why you care about it and why that point of view is frightening to you. But then the other thing is like, be respectful and respectful doesn't mean you have to respect opinions that are ridiculous or, or, or hateful things that are said. What it does mean is you have to be genuinely curious about how they arrived at their point of view. And so if somebody believes that the election was stolen. If you're genuinely curious, then you would ask a lot of questions and not gotcha questions, not like, well, isn't it, you know, don't you think this and what about this? But like, okay, but where did you hear that? And, and do you, how does that make you, what do you think is likely about that? And then also at some point going, okay, well, if that were the case, do you think that even though my side won, do you think that I would be okay with that if that were real? You know, so, you know, leverage your personal relationship because it's the most persuasive thing you have and ask a lot of genuine questions, help them get to the right conclusion. And then finally, be patient because if they believe that stuff, well, it's probably because they're spending an hour with Tucker Carlson every night or they're spending an hour with whoever every, every day over the radio or whatever it is. You're not going to break through that in one conversation. You know, put the time in, invest the time and 
over a period of months, you can you can soften that point of view. Yeah, Ryan, can I? I wanted to ask. A, I'm gonna take a point of privilege here and ask a follow up question because it was it's a personal one. I mean, a personal experience I had with Jason. I don't know if he remembers this, but we did an event in New York, Jason, not long after your Senate race, and I remember you know you were um, with, with we were with a group of people and you got a question to the, to this point about you know, how you were able to talk to people in your state who, you know, didn't agree with you. And, you know, and, and your answer, which you may or not remember, was so wonderful because it was like, are, you know, these are these are the people I play poker with. These are the people that I, <laughs> that, you know, these are my friends and my family. And so I think you're, you know, I think there's such an important lesson that you're, you're mentioning. There's so many of us live in bubbles, right, where we don't talk to anybody who doesn't agree with us. And I think that that's such an important lesson for people who are not in red states or purple states to understand that this is like, this is, this is real life, right? I mean, that, that is, this is exactly what you just said. Well, and that's the thing is that I think far too often the, this whole conversation is reduced in the media to a question of like whether Democrats should be moderate or liberal. And I just think that's ridiculous. And it's and it's completely the wrong question. Democrats should stand for whatever they stand for. Like I'm a liberal and I sound like a liberal. And you know, in the when I was campaigning here in, in Missouri, I, you know, that I campaigned on liberal ideas. But I also sounded like somebody from where I'm from. And and that's the thing is that there there are a lot of people who will say to me on social media and otherwise, like, no, you know, there there should be no engagement with people who, particularly people who voted for Trump twice. I mean, that's how could we like ever engage? And and people will act like you're you're giving aid and comfort to racism and, and all these things. And and I'm my thing is like, okay, that is a fine point of view. And, and it's hard to argue with, except like some of us live in a part of the country where that's like a lot of the people we know. And so you, you don't really, we don't, I don't have the luxury. Uh, I mean, particularly if I were running for something, I wouldn't have the luxury of writing those folks off. Doesn't mean I would say things to try and get their vote that like I didn't believe in. It just means I have a responsibility to bring those people out of it, to save those souls, to convince them uh, to come out of that. But also just like as a person who lives here, right? Like, you know, I have neighbors who have Trump signs, but like sometimes when I have an extra trash bag, they let me put my trash in their yard. Like, you know, I, I, I want, if my dog gets out, I, I want that neighbor to want to tell me about it, you know? So not everybody has, has the luxury of just writing off part of the country. So and also, I think, honestly, we if we're going to not just win elections, but actually govern in a way that holds the country together in the long term, doesn't mean that you have to um, compromise with people who don't believe you have a right to exist. But it does mean that it makes a lot of sense to try to convince those people over time to change their mind. And Jason, can I ask, how does how's that going for you? I mean, uh, so you you're playing baseball, you're coaching T-ball. This is a place where people with different political beliefs interact, right? Like these are one of the few places anymore. Are you, if, while it feels like the media and the Republican Party is hardening in their positions and extremes, what are you seeing on the ground among the people you interact with? You know, what's interesting for me is that uh, I can sometimes tell because when people will tell me like when they, when they will indicate that they are familiar with me or that they knew who I was when I showed up or whatever, you, there's two reactions you get. One is like, oh, and I, and I, I listened to the podcast of the show or I voted for you. Or I'm a fan or whatever. And the other is just like, yeah, I knew who you were. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, 
they're being friendly, but like probably not a liberal, you know? And so for me, it's kind of funny. I can, I can tell right away, but it's, you know, sometimes they'll bring up politics or whatever. I figure in my case, it's a little different. Everybody pretty well knows where I stand on stuff. So I don't do a lot of evangelizing with people because I figure they already know. But I do find that a lot of people will bring it up with me, even people who disagree with me on stuff. Um, Because the phenomenon is, and, and I think people listening will recognize this, what people will do is like someone who maybe they're a conservative, they, if they already have a relationship with you, they'll say something about somebody in office and then they'll be like, but like, they're not like you, like they're like a partisan liberal, like hack. And, it, and, and it's like, well, no, no, you think that I'm different because you already like me, but actually I have the same views as them. And what's funny for me is frequently, like the person they're talking about, like it doesn't occur to them that like, that person is probably a friend of mine, right? Like, like it wasn't long ago that somebody I'm uh, friends with started saying something about how they thought Kamala Harris was this crazy liberal who they could never vote for. And she, you know, this and that and all this stuff that wasn't true. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm like pretty good friends with her. Right. And they were like, Oh, well, and I'm like, and she's like a pretty great person. And, and so it is interesting, right. To just be like a little league coach, who has a little bit unique perspective on that stuff. And I guess what I would say is, is I like settling back into not being a person who uh, people think first of politics necessarily when they see me, because I get to overhear a lot more candid conversations and it's uh, educational for me. So I have learned just to make this an extra long answer. I'll finish with this. I have learned to do something that I learned from my wife, which is, to wait to engage a few minutes. I used to have a tendency to, as soon as somebody said something that I disagreed with or that I thought was terrible, um, no, like if it's a racist thing, I'll jump in, but like some just fact that's just wrong, I used to just jump right in. And I've learned from my wife to wait a couple minutes, see if I can you know, glean any more information and then to ask a few questions and then to gently kind of insert my opinion. And that works much, much better. Yeah. I do, uh, a, go ahead, oh, sorry. I just wanted to ask one yeah. thing, which was, uh, so do you ever, when you, when you're playing baseball, do they ever like try to, uh, get in your head? Like you walk up to bat and the catcher's like climate change isn't real or something <laughs> like that. Uh, not yet, but I've, I've only played, uh, like three games, uh, yeah. so far. So, um, I haven't had anything, anything like that yet, but yeah, uh, thanks Ryan. I, now they will. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now that you gave them the idea. <laughs> well, if they're listening, if they're listening to this show, they probably that's probably, probably agree with that. <laughs> that's a fair point. I, I want to ask uh, one other political question, if I, if I can, Jason. I'm so worried, you know, because politics is, uh, you know, never ending these days. We, can, we never get the chance to talk. We're going to talk about governing next, which is actually my favorite thing, rather than pol- politicking. But what do you make of the state of the Republican Party with uh, with everything that's going on? And you know, do you? Yeah, and as we, particularly as we're heading into the into the midterms, I think it's scary, but not surprising. You know, like I don't think it's at all surprising that all, that all these folks are acting like politicians and trying to think first and foremost about how they make sure that they don't lose a primary. Like when you think about it, at the end of the day, this notion that we have that a party is going to operate in the whole, in the best interest of the party itself in order to win as many elections against the other side as, I mean, that is a, a 
not a bygone thing, but it, we're just not in that phase right now. And a lot of that has to do with the brokenness of our democracy. So I'm not surprised that coming out of this, you got a whole bunch. Of, I mean, J.D. Vance is a great example in Ohio. Like, I mean, that dude is just absolutely play acting like he's just absolutely out there he wants to win a republican primary for senate and he's just out there pretending to believe stuff he does not believe and he's pretending to not understand stuff that he does understand and, and that's because as one politician once told me a long time ago you got to win the pennant before you can win the series and that's how they're motivated they you know even if they're in a state where there's going to be a competitive general election they can't let anybody get to their right and so i this is a inevitable thing and i also think there's way too much celebrating on the left about the infighting of the republicans and about like the occasional headline about how somebody may start another party none of that is going to because people get excited about that because they think that what's going to happen is that somehow the party's going to split and and we're going to get what's left on the, on their plate and it's going to be scooped onto our plate that's not that's not how this works right like if the, if the Republican Party is fighting like crazy, it just means that a certain segment of the population is going to go further and further right. And but we still have to convince people like it doesn't you don't automatically get the food off their plate like you got to work in order to get it. And so we still have a lot of convincing to do. And, and so that that to me, it's like, yeah, that's all going on over there. But that's noise. And, and you only benefit from that noise if you put in the work to convince people like in the suburbs right now in America, there are people who are up for grabs. I mean, a lot of them voted two elections in a row, like 2018 and 2020 Republicans from the suburbs who voted for Democrats, but they don't see themselves as Democrats yet. They see themselves as Republicans who could not stand what was going on, but they're ready to go back. Like they're ready to go back and it's going to take a lot to keep them from doing it. And the Republican parties absurdity won't be enough like those people do not care about whether liz cheney is the conference chair like that's not affecting their life they've got to be convinced by us that what we're doing is really great and if we do that over time they'll become former republicans but it's going to be based on our work not you know not the other side tripping over itself so how do you think we're doing how do you think joe biden and kamala harris are doing with for, for both America, but also specifically for those voters that we need to keep on our side? Well, I think for America, for America, the Biden administration is doing a great job and, uh, and Kamala Harris is doing a great job. And I think by that same token and for that same reason, they're doing a great job on this, right? They're getting stuff done and people like getting stuff done. People like that they can now go to see their friends uh, because they're both vaccinated. People like that that they're, you know, that the child, the child tax credit is being, you know, they, they, that stuff makes sense to them, right? They like the policies that are being pushed. They like the economic stimulus. They see them getting stuff done. They see them doing the things they said they were going to do. And I, and I just, I, I can't give them, I can't possibly give them enough credit for that. Now, what I worry about a little is that in the process, and I'm not saying we have anything we can do about this yet, but in the process of turning down the temperature, which needed to be turned down a great deal and giving people the ability to go back to focusing on their lives instead of worrying about politics every single day. What it could result in is going into 2022, it could create less urgency among voters on our side about 
getting out there and voting because, you know, people, there's a tendency for people to be like, okay, it's, it's better now. Like that's over. And that I'm not saying that, that therefore the Biden administration should go back to brinksmanship or should start mean tweeting or anything like that. But what it means is it, it, for the people listening to this show who are involved, it's that much more of an obligation to find ways to keep people engaged and, and to continue to mobilize them because it's going to be an even heavier lift because, and that's what happens. Like if you look at 2016, right? Like after eight years of Obama, people were feeling like things were going pretty well and they, they got pretty comfortable. And so we don't want to make people less comfortable economically, but we want to remind people what's at stake and that's going to be on all of us. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. And I I do think that, you know, we are, we're really at this once in a generation, once in a century crossroads, don't you think, when it comes to governing this country and, and the opportunity we have to to be transformational, I think, in terms of some of the, the stuff that the Biden-Harris administration is pushing, obviously, the American Rescue Plan, we're coming up on that, hopefully, with the American Jobs Plan, American Families Plan. You know, we talk to, we, we work with the administration closely on, on these things with our state and local electeds around the country. We're hearing from them, you know, the issues like broadband, like childcare um, access, and something that's really close to your heart, which is housing, uh, you know, are, are really things that need to be addressed. So, I, I'm curious about, you know, Hannah, Hannah how you're feeling about that opportunity and maybe also to pivot a little bit to talk about the work that you're doing, this amazing work with the Veterans Community Project to try to eradicate veterans' homelessness, both with housing and wraparound services for vets. You know, are you optimistic that we can make make some differences on some of those issues? Yeah, absolutely. So it's sort of a two-part question, right? So let me do the politics first and then I'll pivot into the my day job, which is not political. So on the politics of it, the Democratic Party is the party of government. Like it just is like for the longest time, we sort of let the other side put us in a, in a place and in a box where we, we had to uncomfortably pretend that we weren't the party that was in favor of like actually using the government to fix problems. But what I think COVID forced and what, you know, changes in the party over the last few years. uh, And I give people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren a lot of credit for this. What, what all of that has brought to fruition is an acceptance across almost the entire Democratic Party that, yeah, we are actually, we, there's one party that believes government can make people's lives better, and there's a party that doesn't. And we're, we're the party that believes government can make people's lives better. And I, I really like that we have taken this moment to take seriously our belief in that and to prove it. And it's right now... I think that's what we're doing. And I think it's changing people's opinion about government. And that is enormously important for the country. And it's also enormously important for the Democratic Party, because at the end of the day, if people believe that government can't work and can't make things better, they'll vote for the party that, that says that all the time. And that's not us, right? So I think what they're doing is super important. And I think attacking all of these different uh, issues head on is huge. Uh, now to pivot to what I'm doing, which is non-governmental. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Veterans Community Project. So about two years ago, well, two and a half years ago, uh, as you alluded to a few minutes ago, I stepped back from public life and went to the VA for treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Six weeks before making that announcement, I was running for mayor of Kansas City. It was going really well. I was on track to become mayor. And I toured Veterans Community Project, which at the time was a a Kansas City, exclusively a Kansas City nonprofit. And uh, 
And I've toured hundreds of nonprofits, but it, it just knocked me out. I mean, the vibe was like a forward operating base in Afghanistan and a startup in Silicon Valley had a baby. Like it was just innovative and cool. And what they did was they did two things. They, they ran a walk-in clinic for any veteran with any need whatsoever from VA paperwork to uh, financial assistance, to job training, to whatever it is. And so they did that. And then they also had a village of tiny houses for homeless veterans that was combined with wraparound case management and was having like results that were not seen anywhere else in the country by any program. So I was knocked out by it. And I remember being really impressed. And then six weeks later, things had spiraled so badly for me that I was stepping back and was going to go to the VA and found that that process was much more onerous and difficult than I expected. And it was supposed to take months for me to get into weekly therapy. So I ended up going back, not for a tour, but back through the doors of the outreach center, the walk-in clinic to get help with my paperwork. So just like thousands of other vets in Kansas city. And, uh, like a week later, I was in weekly therapy at the VA. And uh, several months later, I was doing really well. And I was hanging out at Veterans Community Project, BCP, and well, kind of mentoring the founders through the fact that they had done so well in Kansas City that, and this is something they didn't expect when they started, communities across the country were saying, hey, can you replicate that in our town? Can you come and, and do it here as well? Can you expand? And they were trying to figure out how to do that. And after me, like trying to help them, finally, you know, they just said, hey, look, you've built a national organization before. You don't know what you want to do next. Why don't you just come here and help us do it? And so that's how I became president of ECP. And I've been doing that for the last couple of years. And now, you know, we are uh, serving veterans in uh, Boulder County, Colorado, in the Denver area. We're about to build a campus there, you know, with a village of tiny houses and everything in St. Louis. Uh, we have land. We're raising money now. We're looking in the next few months to, to break ground on a campus there. We've just signed a memorandum of understanding with the city of Sioux Falls, South Dakota to do the same. And then we also have three or four right now, maybe as many as five that are like just coming, you know, right, right after that cities around the country. And ultimately it's my objective to take this to every major population center in the country because it's needed. And it's a, it's a fantastic organization. It's the best civilian job I've ever had. And, um, I love doing it. Oh, and people can uh, support it if they're interested. It's we're, we're not federally funded. We're, we're funded by private donations and it, it's veteranscommunityproject.org. And Jason, for the listeners who are at the state and local level, whether elected or just or working at that level, what can we do first sort of in the short term to support veterans who are struggling uh, in our community with homelessness or other issues? And then what can we do to accelerate VCP's expansion into our into our communities? Well, I mean, honestly, I think the answer is the, the answer to the second question is the answer to the first. So I'm just going to focus on, I appreciate the question. I'm going to focus on what people can do if they want to see a, a VCP in their town. And it is, you know, we're, there's a lot of people listening to this who I, I assume are either very involved locally at a minimum or elected locally. Uh, you know, so we need three things in order to come into a community. We need local champions, we need land, and we need philanthropic and uh, community support. And if we have those three things, then we come into your community. So that, that's what people can do is they like, if, if they're interested and like, if, if they have access to the people who can help us get the land or they have access to folks who can help us raise the money in that community. Cause that's the thing is we raise the money locally. Like these are local, local projects that we start, you know, then they should 
I would encourage them to contact us. Again, they can go to veteranscommunityproject.org or they can find me on social media and uh, I'd love to talk to them. Yeah, thanks, Jason. And I, we were so glad you came to talk to New Deal, um, right? Pretty soon yeah. after you took this job. Like um, right away. That, yeah, right yeah. away. And um, I appreciate that. Well, you're absolutely welcome. And I will continue to push this with New Deal leaders because I just think it's a it's a really important um, and such a, you know, such a ready-made uh, solution, really, if they can, people can just kind of get the, the factors together that you need, you know? Well, I mean, that, so as you'll remember, like, for that talk, I was introduced by my friend Tashara Jones, who is now the newly elected mayor of St. Louis. And I have a meeting with her in the next, I mean, we talk all the time, but like we have an official meeting to talk about VCP in St. Louis in the next couple of weeks, because, you know, we're getting ready to start building there and we're, she and I are going to talk more about how the city can help even more. So it all kind of comes full circle. It does. And we, and of course we love Tashara and are so excited to see her win that mayor's race for sure. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this podcast, Jason, an honorable profession is really... I think, by the way, that she is also the one who nominated me for New Deal Leaders in the first place. Is that, so. I think she, I think that's right, yeah. actually. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. So as you uh, remember from your last visit and, and when Ryan kicked off an honorable profession, the idea was, the, the behind it was that, and this goes back to what you were talking about, about just owning the fact that we're a party that gov we think government can do things to help people, right? Is we think public service and elected office is honorable, right? And that, and that this is important. And so... I'd love to ask you just a little bit about your own path to public service. Obviously, you have a long career that is very service oriented, you know, that you volunteered for the National Guard after the 9-11 attacks. After law school, you signed up for a tour in Afghanistan. You ran for office. You came back and, you know, we've talked about today working on democracy and, and homelessness and veterans issues and other things. So just out of curiosity, kind of what what do you feel like, was there something that, you know, when you were growing up or, you know, what, what drew you to kind of a life in public service generally? I think it was just the house I grew up in. Like my parents were not involved in politics, but they were public servants. My parents were juvenile probation officers. And then my dad also was a police officer as well. So he had two jobs and, um, you know, I just, I watched, I followed their example, not just like what they did professionally, but more like what they did at home. So, you know, my younger brother and I have these other brothers as well that we, we refer to as our unofficial foster brothers because they grew up in our house. They were friends of ours from our neighborhood whose families at one time or another were struggling. And my parents just took them in and they just became part of our family and remain part of our family. And so I think it's that. I think it's just that there was no plan by my parents for me to be in politics or probably no hope for that. Like it wasn't like something they hoped I would do. They, they just wanted me to be happy and confident and make a difference in people's lives. And, uh, and so ultimately that path combined with, you know, I think it was also accentuated by serving in the military and, and, and my experience there. But I think it's just my parents' example at home, which was, you know, if you if you have the ability to help other people, that's what you got to do. And I chose, I chose politics to do that in, you know, the first 20 or so years of my adult life. And, uh, and perhaps that'll be the, you know, the, the way in which the path in which I'll do that again in the future. I mean, I'm still involved, but it could be elected politics in the future. But right now it's, it's public service through serving veterans as a nonprofit executive. Jason, as we wrap up here, can you excited to hear you're you're writing another book? Your first book was uh, fantastic. Mm, thank you. Can you talk? Can you talk about how you find the the intellectual stimulation or knowledge that you bring to to politics? You know, I, you're 
you're obviously well read and you obviously spend time thinking about it. And for elected officials that are in the day to day and responding, you know, where do they find that that source for context for their jobs? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I appreciate it. I I think the key is to spend time with people who don't do for a living what you do. For me, so much of my perspective on the world is it's like it's half growing up in the Midwest and having sort of that Midwestern point of view and maybe like plain spoken approach or whatever people call it. Uh, like I can remember at times like when I was a CNN commentator, like I'd I'd answer a question and they would assume that I was going to talk for like two minutes, but I'd like give the answer contrary to what I've done on this podcast, I'd give the answer in like 20 seconds and the host clearly like wasn't prepared for that. And so, you know, it's part of it just being from here. But then the other thing is just, I think it's, it was coming up my first professional experience and like though my longest professional experience, even to this point, like my longest job was the military. And I think that influenced, influenced it a lot. So for example, when I was a CNN commentator after the 2016 election, I did that for about a year and I was, you know, running Let America Vote and building it and was like running around the country campaigning for people. But, but my assistant and I at that time officed out of the IBEW hall down the street from my house in Kansas City. And I chose that because I didn't want to be around other people who were thinking about politics all the time during the day. I felt like if I was going to go on CNN and talk about something that night, I didn't want to sound like everybody else who'd been on all day. So like if I knew I was doing a TV hit that night, I'd go down to the break room and eat my lunch in there and talk to the guys who were coming in, the union guys who were running out and doing, doing jobs as electricians and all that, and just see what they had to say about stuff. And it didn't mean I parroted their views, but it helped me stay grounded in the fact that most people are not living and dying by this stuff every day. Most people are living real lives. And so I guess my advice to folks is like, don't only surround yourself with people who are living and dying by this stuff. Like, like if you work in county government or city government or state government, it's really easy to forget that 99% of the people in your neighborhood have no idea what you do. Now, they may know like what you do. They may know you're the elected person, but they don't have any idea what's going on down where you work and their life continues. And so it's important to maintain that perspective that like they're not living and dying by whether you got the committee assignment you wanted. They don't care. But what they do care about is whether or not, you know, things are going to improve in their life. And so, you know, the more of those relationships you can hang on to and talk not about yourself, but about them the more context you'll have. Very good advice. Thanks. Well, Jason, it's so great to see you. Thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you'll come back uh, when your book, sure. book is out or New Deal would love to host a book party for you or something. I agree oh, with thanks. Ryan that um, I think your voice is an important one. I'm so glad you're continuing to use it, particularly around Democrats need to, um, you know, to talk to everybody and to persuade and to do the job, uh, actually, is kind of what you're saying. Uh, and that's how people will vote for us. <laughs> so I really appreciate, appreciate all of that, Ryan. Yeah, th- just thank you. And uh, yeah, we look forward to, uh, to continuing to hear you on your podcast and and hopefully really seeing uh, these veterans community projects scale into into our neighborhoods. It's going to be it's it'll be a great service and a, and a great demonstration of what we can do when we pull together. Well, thank you all so much for what you're doing. Thanks for having me. And uh, I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Oh,